Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bercher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, and this is episode 97, A New World View. As I mentioned before, I've got some sort of new news coming up. I'm going to work up to episode 100, and then I'm going to tell you about a new project that I have going on. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this, and we, and my partner and I, have started working on this already. And uh, I'm not sure what... Um, <clears throat> what kind of frequency might change or what exactly might change with knowledge plus experience equals wisdom, if anything. Uh, and another thing I'd like to remind you about is uh, I have been writing on Medium and publishing at least a couple of articles a month. And most of those I've been sharing on the homepage, www.chrisbritcher.com. That's where you can find all things knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. Of something like 120 episodes uh, of maybe 20-some episodes that are interviews, and then, again, pushing up on 100 of these sort of solo monologue episodes about topics that I feel are important. I appreciate your time and attention, and I would also appreciate it if you would share about this with your friends, because I've done absolutely zero marketing, and you can tell. I don't have a whole lot of views and likes and all that stuff per week, but I know that there are people out there who are picking up what I'm laying down, and I would like for that to happen at a larger scale, obviously, because I want people to have what they want. And I think there's a lot more people out there that are interested in this stuff like you and I. And uh, if that could happen organically, it'd be great. And I'm certainly not going to make it happen from a social media marketing standpoint. Anyway, this week's episode about a new worldview is sort of a culmination of things, right? And I'll begin rehashing something that I've mentioned in several episodes in the past, and I can't recall the titles of those right now, Uh, dedicated whole episodes to this idea. And I mention this all the time, the idea that in at the risk of using sort of pre-existing philosophical jargon, the dualistic nature of humans. Now, lots of philosophers and psychologists have used that terminology before. And truthfully, I don't even know what they meant, because I'm not... Yeah, that proficient in sort of learning the schools of thought, right? I like to think so as independently as I possibly can and be influenced in an energetic way by what people have written, but I don't subscribe to the um, like thoroughly ingesting the the absoluteness of pre-existing theories and building on them. Uh, in fact, I like to be influenced by those as little as possible. What I like to be influenced by is the excitement that I get by reading in general, about what people have written. I've said this before, but when I read a book, all I read is really is nonfiction. Not because I judge fiction. It's just because there's so many things I'm interested in that I want to read. But I read experientially. You know, I read James Clear's Atomic Atomic Habits like millions of other people, but I don't really remember the tenets and the premises of his book. What I remember are a very (laughs) superficial ideas like habit stacking. If you've already got a pre-existing habit, it's a lot easier to tie a new habit to that one. And the idea that you don't want to say, okay, I'm going to work out four hours a day, six days a week for the rest of my life, because that's too big of a mountain to climb. So you pick these smaller pieces. That's what I remember about his sort of tenets. But what I experienced reading that book is that a mind-blowing sort of paradigm shift that I need to stop thinking about habits the way that I used to and start thinking about them differently that's exciting to me. Now, does it, it doesn't make me a very good Jeopardy contestant or even somebody that says, well, why did you like James Clare's Atomic Habits? Well, I'll say because it inspired me. 
And so I have been inspired by the, the, the things that I've read, the, the experiences I've had, the people that I've talked to. And surely m- most, if not all, of my ideas, you know, have been inspired by other people and are just a repackaging of something that I've heard. But it's, but it's also happening in a, in a unique and new way. And I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but maybe this example illustrates it better. When I'm working with my coach, Neil Bjorklund, who is um, in one of my interviews from the R vs. Should Problem interview series, remarkable guy. He told me that, you know, when I first met him, here's what we'd be doing. I sort of had a preconceived idea of his background, which was circuitously coming through uh, a pathway that eventually leads back to Don Miguel Ruiz and Toltec teachings, things like the Four Agreements and sort of this, um, just an alternative approach to the standard sort of Jungian, Freudian psychological techniques is all. And he was a coach and not a therapist, which gave us a little more freedom. That's all I really knew. I remember from our first meeting him talking about sort of body awareness and that might we might be doing something called tapping, which I knew nothing about. Ended up working for him with him. Well, I'm still working with him after a couple of years. But it wasn't until we were about a year in, I kept hearing him talk about IFS. And I'm, I finally was like, what is IFS again? And he's like, oh, it's internal family systems. It's a model of method. It's kind of what we're doing here. All that to say, I didn't need to know what we were doing. I just wanted to experience it. And this is a, a whole shift in, in, in the last two years of my life, and hopefully will last for the rest of my life, to sort of complement my analytical brain with all the other sensory <laughs> perception that don't necessarily include interpretation at some cognitive level uh, and a more body awareness, experiential kind of. Um, and that's sort of related to today's topic, this new world vision, because I think in order to be complete humans, and I think prior to maybe, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, humans were way better at this. We had this cognizant, analytical thinking ability, but we also had these other connections to the world around us, right? That the rest of our bodies, this awareness of our feelings and our sensations that that sure, they have to go through our brain because they're nervous in nature, but they don't have to go through this processing, analytic, thinking part of our brain. Uh, it was a different, it's a different kind of connection. And I'm, I'm learning to reconnect with that. And I think, in general, our disconnection from that and our sort of loss of that connection th- over the last couple thousand years, I'm just throwing that out there, it might be 500, it might be 10,000, but it definitely wasn't... <laughs> you know, it was different for the majority of Homo sapiens life on the planet. I'm pretty convinced of that. Um, and I'm happy to have my mind changed, but that's what's behind this. Um, <clears throat> and so in law lo- and the loss of that skill set has created the problems that we see today. That's the general 50,000 foot view of all this. And there's a whole bunch of assumptions that go behind there. you certainly have to buy into the idea that, you know, the solutions to all human problems are not going to come through science. Uh, they're not going to come through analyzing. They're not going to come through this, this cognitive capacity that our brains have. While it is awesome at solving certain problems, things like intuition um, and other, other connections to energies in the planet, I don't even know. But if you look back in the history of indigenous cultures, there's a whole lot more of this stuff that I'm talking about recapturing some of this intelligence, right, 
is going to be the secret to moving forward. And so below all those assumptions is this idea that this dualistic nature of humans. And what I mean by that, that's a long way to go, uh, (laughs) is that we are both individuals with that whole set of like ecological tenets and reasons why we're here and the purpose of life and our duties and our responsibilities and our sort of prime directives as defined by our skin that make us an individual in the society, just like the concept of an individual in ecology versus like a population of a species um, or even like a group, uh, a reproductive unit, whatever. And then we're also a part of the collective na- uh, group of Homo sapiens living right now, as well as through history, as well as the future, right? We are both individuals and we are part of a community. You can't deny that. You can't tease that apart. You can't be one or the other. It's, it doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways. A lot of the goals are mutually exclusive, and we just have to figure out how to make that work. And that's part of the human condition. We have prime directives. Uh, from our individual perspective, and we have prime directives from our communal expe- uh, perspective. And so call this what you want, right? You've got individualism and collectivism, communalism, um, selfish thought. I, I, don't, I don't really care, right? I, I'm defining them based on basically what I said, that we have these responsibilities, um, jobs, goals um, that are related to each, and we try to make those things overlap. It's a schism, right? So it's, a, it's the collectivism, individualism, schism, if you want to think about it like that. It's a, it's a thing and it's a problem. And why it matters now is because I think the pendulum has sort of pushed way, is pushing further and further, <laughs> further than I would think it could go uh, toward the individualism side of this equation. And, you know, I think we should move, basically move freely between these two extremes, not to occupy some average in the middle, um, which I'll talk a little bit about that next episode, this idea of normal curves and sort of where we fall, uh, but that we should be equally adept at performing in our lives as both sort of consumers and producers or whatever, or sort of people you know gaining benefit and then giving back in both of these groups. It can happen simultaneously, and it should, and it did, and it has, but it isn't. That's my concern. And so things like war, anxiety, famine, and social injustices, climate change, these problems all stem from the pendulum swinging, us being too obsessed with being either individuals in the world or, you know, an individual in our phone, essentially separate from the world. I'm not saying an individual is ever separate, right? Notice the difference. We're always a part of the collective. It's just some of our prime directives, if you will, our goals have to do with our own personal growth, our own personal experience, our own personal joy, but those goals simultaneously have a relationship to the outside world. It's sort of like, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or um, your, 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 your rights are guaranteed in as much as they don't interfere with the rights of others. So it's like your personal experience can be whatever you want it to be, but it's always in the context of the collective. And so if 
99% of the people in the world don't like looking at your genitals, there's going to be a societal norm of wearing clothes, and that's just how it's going to be. And I think that sort of management is actually ideally the best sort of management, rather than somebody coming up with some rule that says, you must always wear pants if you are a man, and you must always wear a dress if you are a woman. Do you see the difference there? Instead of just, you know, people are generally uncomfortable looking at your junk, cover it up when you're in public. You know, that's a whole, that's a completely different way of moving through the world. That gets a little bit closer to what I'm talking about is Somebody brought this up. I think it was a podcast I was listening to, and then it came up in a conversation. This idea that all the self-help, all the personal growth, all the spiritual enlightenment, religion, all the things that we do tend to be focused mostly on the individual. It's self-help. It's personal growth. We're trying, we're trying to get fitter. We're trying to sleep better. We're trying to be happier. We're trying to be healthier, which everybody says that's putting your oxygen mask first. If you can accomplish those goals, that will allow you to make a bigger contribution to the outside world. We forget to mention that part sometimes, but ultimately that's the goal. And I would argue at one level from a worldview level is we are not going to solve climate change until each one of us figures out how to reconfigure our value system to make that important. That At that time, once some, it's like the pandemic, right? Once we get herd immunity, or in this context, herd um, you know, uh, awareness and caring about fixing the planet, once 70% of the people on the earth go, ooh, okay, I'm willing, I get it now, I'm willing to not drive a car at all, or whatever, then it's not going to happen. Of course, that's not the way to solve the problem, because that's going to take forever. Although, if that is the, be- the worst case scenario, I'm willing to accept it. And sometimes I think that's the path where that's the default path. You know, some of us want to change things. And so we are working on ourselves to do that. What I'm suggesting that we need now is is that someone to organize all that (laughs) or some groups or some mechanisms to go, hey, you know, do you give a crap uh, about whether or not a woman can make choices about her own body? Yes or no? Yes. Come with me. No. Okay. well. Good on you. Um, keep on doing whatever. And then we'll get these people together through, I mean, think about it. We have the tools necessary to do these things. We just don't have the leadership and we don't have the incentive. Again, the incentives are pretty strong for I want to be happier. I want to sleep better. I want to get a better body. I want to live longer. Those are great incentives. What we need now is an incentive that says if we group together, we can change things systematically more quickly than we can separately, and I'm willing to help, and let's do this thing. And here's an an example. We've done some research that has shown that these techniques have worked in other cultures, other governments, other communities. You know, don't give up, because I, and I am as guilty as anybody else. I'm just looking for a little confidence, a little evidence in the world that it's not going to end up being, you know, 20 to 1 all the time. Because I still feel like, and I think many people feel like, and climate change isn't a great example, but it's a big one, you know, if <clears throat> that, that not enough people care, you know, that, that and so if we were to try something, it's probably just going to fail. And, and then what? Then I'm going to be disappointed out whatever resources I spent, tired, I lost some time in my life. You know, it's just not worth it to me. 
to fight this fight. I'm, and, and especially if I actually do believe that slowly over time, maybe in like, you know, 100 years or 200 years, things will improve. And I can just accept that that's human nature and that's the human condition and that's the best as we're going to do. So there's a lot of factors sort of driving that. So I think in lieu of um, a something novel, and or maybe not novel, but some successful movement uh, where we actually say, hey, we, we did something. Uh, we did something that we didn't really, that maybe wasn't obvious, uh, but it worked. It seems to have this positive effect, and let's keep it going. And then it becomes a habit. You know, again, we pull in atomic habits, all these other things that we know how to do. And it, and it reminds me of sort of people will say, well, vote and you'll change the world. Well, you know what? I've voted enough times to know that that ain't the vehicle. I'm not getting on that train anymore. And I think most of us are not going to get on that train anymore. Even in a small community, you may be able to change some things. But it's not worth it. Like, example, for me to be on the town council or something, the amount of effort and anguish and dissatisfaction that that's going to create in my personal life compared to even a a phantasmic, you know, fantasy idea of what change might come out of it is disproportional. There's got to be a different mechanism. Uh, And so the, 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 the most utopian but yet impossible scenario I can think is we just take the Constitution and tear it to shreds and rewrite it better. Uh, But no one is going to accept that level of change. So what lies between uh, an individual person thinking they might try to run for local politics and actually winning and trying to make a difference that way, or, you know, a person voting, trying to make a difference that way versus anarchy and complete, um, uh, you know, I don't even know what you call that, where you can like uh, mutiny and um, revolution, which is exciting to think about for me. Uh, Something more on that end of the spectrum, but not quite that drastic. That's what we need. And again, we have the people, we have the skill sets, we have the history, we have the awareness, we have the attention, we have the technology to do something like that. Um, and I don't know why that we, why we don't do it to tell you the truth. I mean, I look, you know, all through high school, we looked back at the, the sort of the sixties activism for social justice issues and anti-war issues. Um, and even just like bra burning, whatever you call that or smoking weed when we thought that's awesome. Now these hippies are dirty and nasty and, uh, there's a lot of things maybe that aren't so good, but at least they're standing up for what they believe in. I don't really see that so much anymore. Maybe in the the Black Lives Matter, and maybe I'm just older and I've got my own kids to worry about, and so my head is more in a hole and it's happening and I'm just not aware of it. And I'm not saying that that's what we need, like civil disobedience. We can do different things, right? We can, where is the group responsible for thinking about these things? Uh, and I think a lot of this has to do Again, kind of completing the the worldview has to be has to come from an individuals, but it has to be applied to a collective group. And it's impossible to say, okay, all seven and a half billion people on planet Earth only get vanilla ice cream for the rest of the of the time. Sorry, that's what the group decided. We're we're, we're simply not going to be able to make you know drastic 
changes like that. And, and it's really, these are really difficult things to summarize when you have such a broad interest from this and many people. If one thing I could suggest right off the bat that would probably happen at the first meeting is to say, the one thing that we know that's happened in the last 200,000 years of human homo sapiens existence is there's more of us. And if there's one thing we know that's happened in the last hundred years is there's exponentially more of us. And so maybe this is just a numbers problem. And so if we can't make decisions for seven and a half billion people, what's a good number of people that we can make decisions for? Right now, what do we have, like census blocks? You know, is there, let's start there. Let's let this, let's reapply democracy at a different scope. Um, and have more representatives for fewer people or whatever, you know, maybe that's the answer. Or at least, no, that, that isn't the answer. But that's the sort of thing that I think could happen in a group like this. And let's demand it. Let's make it um, um, a, a legal construct and a requirement to get, um, you know, to be able to spend tax money. I, I, I don't know. Um I, this this episode isn't about the solutions, right? It's about saying, making a point that until we have a more homogenous world view, nothing is going to happen. In as much to the same extent as until we change our own personal values, and so I'm talking about like. What are the you know what are your own values? That's a very important work. I got an episode on it. I talk about it all the time. Well, what's the what are human values? And can we do that? Can we make a list? But you know, by lumping and splitting of what matters, and then filter all the decisions that we make as a globe and as countries and continents and counties and states and through these these lenses. There should be equivalent, there should be less hunger, more equivalent food for all, clean water for all, clean air for all, opportunity at a more equitable, you know, spread for all. Can't we do that and eliminate stuff like, well, everybody should make $100 an hour or, or whatever, like stay out of the weeds and just come up with the, the, the simple stuff and then yeah, that that that's what we should be doing. When did we stop doing that? And I think if you actually... The answer to these questions about why it isn't like that are pretty simple, if you ask me. It's because money and power have become commoditized goals and uh, um, um, uh, accumulatable... <laughs> uh, people are able to accumulate them both at a dis- exceptionally disproportionate amounts and rates. That's what's messed up. We got to change that too. Uh, and we've learned enough about that stuff to say, how do we not do it? So anyway, as I get closer to episode 100, I am throwing out these unsolvable problems and just sort of saying, I don't, I don't care if, if you or anyone else thinks these problems are unsolvable. I don't care. That doesn't make me not want to do it. I still believe we can do it. I still want to do it. I still think it would be fun to try because I guess I just don't feel the same 
fear of it not working out as everybody else does. Like, what if you did want to dramatically change, like your your local public school system, and just sort of say, you know what, uh, we're going to start demanding, um, we're we're going to close the school down until the state agrees to give us more money, and we're not going to hire any more teachers, and we're just going to close it all down until. We get our needs met. And maybe striking isn't the best deal. Maybe it's about rewriting the charter or redistricting or busing or something. What if you just did it and, like, didn't care if you were arrested? Like, what is the worst thing that could happen if we change stuff? I think there's this underlying sense of fear of change that's keeping a lot of this from happening. And the more individualistic we get, the more these fears sort of propagate in very unrealistic ways that just make us less and less likely to do anything. And so, you know, as impossible a task as this is, next time you're sitting around, instead of picking up your phone, play with it. You know, make it a thought experiment. I don't know. What if we did like trash? What what bothers me? Okay, how would we go about changing that? What's a completely new and interesting way that we could actually do something to make that be different? What does that look like? That'd be fun. And we, you know, and we need it. So that's my challenge for you from uh, episode 97, A New Worldview. I'm Chris Bircher. This is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. I'll see you next week. Take it easy.